0: Welcome to Driven Radio Show, your home for car talk covering the latest news to the greatest views on the biggest names in performance, sports, and just plain cool driving machines. Let's rev up the conversation. Time for Driven Radio Show. Uh, Welcome to Driven Radio Show. This is Mark Groves, your friendly neighborhood audio engineer guy. Brett Hatfield, the regular host, is still a little under the weather. Yeah, I know. Bronchitis and pneumonia and what's it with it? So as we finish healing, here's a best-of show from about a year ago with an amazing guy named Bill Warner. Enjoy, and thanks for listening to Driven Radio show. Our
1: special guest tonight is Bill Warner. Bill's bio reads like a movie script. After earning a BS in electrical engineering from the Citadel in 1966, Bill had a side job working for Sports Car Graphic Magazine. He has since worked for Road & Track, Car & Driver, Auto Week, the Atlantic Monthly Automobile, Automotor & Sport, Classic and sports car Porsche Panorama and Forza and Playboy. No, not Playboy. <laughs> Hell. Bill is also an accomplished racer, having turned wheels in anger at racetracks across the U.S. In addition to being a Cannonball Baker C to Shining Sea Memorial Trophy Dash competitor, A.K.A. the Cannonball Run, Bill is also an author, philanthropist. The aforementioned racer, he's a car collector and restorer, a Concours judge. There's not much this guy can't do, but most importantly uh, for most of us, he is the founder and chairman of the Amelia Island Concours d'Elegance, where so many of us go to escape crappy weather in March and check out the glory that is Florida and all of the wonderful cars there. Bill, welcome to Driven Radio.
2: Thank you, Brett. Pleasure being here.
1: Uh, You know, I really wanted to read your entire resume, but it runs longer than the script for the show. So This computer only has so much tape. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, you
2: you you, got to create all that stuff. I I look back and say, I didn't really do all
1: that. You do have an impressive resume, and we had to cut a lot of it out to be able to fit it in here. Where did you find the time to do all the impressive
2: stuff you've done? I don't don't know if it's impressive, but I... uh, It's impressive to me. (laughs) you got to cram into it everything you can. I I was always a car guy, and being a car guy at the Citadel was not really great. You know, you couldn't have a car to your sophomore year, and being a military college, it it didn't uh, instill uh, the uh, demand for cars. I started the uh, sports car club at the Citadel, and you had to do something uh, that contributed to the... Uh, lifestyle of the Corps of cadets, you know, the, the betterment of the Corps of cadets. So I decided we'd do a safety inspection of all the cars going home for spring break. And <laughs> John Mark Clark thought it was so good of an idea that he'd make it mandatory, which really made my stock drop about a hundred points.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. Uh, how did you get your foot in the door for your first magazine gig?
2: I, I, I live close to Daytona. It's only an hour from my my house. And uh, when I was in high school, I worked driving a, a, a courtesy van for Al Sager Volkswagen, I and mean, he had a couple of race cars. So I really got into racing about nineteen fifty eight, fifty nine. And uh, I uh, I wanted to get close to racing, but I couldn't afford it. I wasn't making much money. Uh, I passed up an RSK Spider for twenty four hundred dollars when I was making. Uh, six-
3: oh my god! Oh my god! <laughs>
2: So, uh, I decided my sister, my late sister, uh, had my parents give me a camera when I was 16 thinking that I went off to college. I'd want to record, you know, what life was like there, but I used it to go to races. And, um, after I got out, I, the only way I could get to a race was shooting for a magazine. So I got a press pass from a local TV station, sent the photos off to sports car graphic and the timing was pretty good. They picked me up as an East coast guy for them. And then, uh, they folded in 71, and Road and Track was looking for somebody down here. They had Alice Bixler shooting. She moved to Canada. So being in Jacksonville, I was close to Daytona and Sebring and Road Atlanta, and then later on expanded to Watkins Glen and Le Mans and other places. So that's kind of how it started.
1: You're also an award-winning photographer. Uh, how did you learn that craft? And can you tell us some of the places your photos have been seen?
2: Um. Yeah, I am. Um, I was kind of self-taught. Uh, when I got to the Citadel, I found out that, you know, every afternoon, every Friday and Saturday they had a formal military parade. And I figured out that if you were on the yearbook staff, uh, you didn't have to go to parade. So I taught myself <laughs> to talk. I didn't necessarily have film in the camera when I went out. You know, I'd go around shooting imaginary pictures to avoid marching in parades. No! So,
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> this is... And- my, my um, tactical officer was a guy who was the, the subject of two Pat Conroy books named Thomas Nugent Cavorsi, Colonel Cavorsi. And he called everybody Bubba. That way he didn't have to remember 2,000 names. They so walked to me after a parade one time and said, Bubba, I want to see the negatives in my office Monday morning. So I really had to scramble them.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know, Mark, this is not entirely unusual. Uh, most of the guys who are going through. Uh, military basic training, uh, you know, uh, basic is no fun. It's really zero yeah. fun. So the first time they say, you know, you can get out of cleaning if you go to church, everybody
2: gets religion. Yeah. <laughs> I did that when I, I I spent 30 years in the Air Force, Air Force Reserve, and, and I turned down my Army commission because those guys, they slip in ditches and stuff. old <laughs> club at night. So I got in the uh, Air Guard and. Later got my commission and, and enjoyed it. I enjoyed it very much. I was a public affairs officer. I was the uh, the guy that told you the plane that crashed didn't have nuclear weapons on board. You
3: know. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, no. Oh, Tybee Island.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, okay, yeah. You know about
3: Tybee Island, right? I do.
1: And several others. Uh, there's. Didn't we get kicked out of Portugal for something like that?
2: One off of Spain, too. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
1: Someday we'll find
2: it. I mean, it'll just
0: be a big boom, you know? Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, God. <laughs>
1: Uh, that or maybe some Iranian broker is already located. It-
0: All these glowing sea bass.
3: Yeah. <laughs> uh, you've. Oh, I,
0: I had a classmate of mine teach
2: me how to do darkroom work, and uh, I I just uh, I picked it up pretty easily. My sister, who I lost to cancer when she was a mere fifty, she was a professional photographer, and she taught me uh, composition, oh. like. Uh, you always wanted your eye to enter the picture on the lower left and exit on the upper right. So, uh, in cars, you always wanted to enter the picture, not leave the picture. So, um, and when you're shooting a car, you want to be on the outside or the car's compressed on the suspension. You want to stack them up. So you get more than one because magazines are cheap. And if you can get three cars in one shot, they save uh, paying you twice. (laughs) 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 Well, there was a lot of, uh, uh, I guess I had just had a natural ability Coming from cars and cameras, I, I knew what I wanted to see in a photograph. Um, so I started with sports car graphic, then road and track, and uh, did a lot of work with uh, uh, Betty Joe Turner at, at Panorama. And I had a lot of uh, clients in in Europe and Australia and Japan. Um, I couldn't make a living doing that. I mean, they don't pay anything for no. a photo. Journal. People would shoot just to get a photo credit. So I had a little filtration company on the side, and and I made my living selling filtration equipment on the week. On the weekends when I wasn't on National Guard duty, I was uh, at the races.
1: And eventually you did figure out how to afford to go racing. Hmm. Uh, You you ought to see the list of places he's raced, the cars he's driven, uh, the things he's been able to do. You've got a, a hell of a history as a competitive driver, Bill. How did you get started with that? And what's your most vivid mem- memory from your racing
3: career?
2: Well, I got started because when I was on the road selling filters, you had a choice. You know, I'd be gone two weeks at a time. You could you could go in a bar and get drunk, or worse, and or go to junkyards. So I would go to junkyards, and I found an ex Denny Holm Brabham BT8 that won the Tourist Trophy and was unde- un- undefeated in under two liter racing. A wonderful car. And I bought it for $2,900 out of a Columbia, South Carolina junkyard. Wow. And then I bought uh, a, a friend of mine uh, was in the insurance business, and he was going to go racing. His wife told him over her dead body, which probably would have been a good decision at the time. <laughs> I was gonna say, how much did that cost you? <laughs>
0: Another
2: $2,900. To buy an ex-Bob Sharp Dotson, so he made, gave me the deal. And I, I didn't have the money. I paid $2,500 up front and $2,500 over the next two months and bought a, a GT3. Um, 510 that belonged to a, a drummer uh, with the Grand Funk Railroad, I think he was, uh, Terry McKenna.
3: Oh my gosh.
2: His part. I, I i decided to to my rookie year to try to get to the runoffs, uh, which I did, and uh, had an interesting race there. A starter motor puke started last, finished fifth, so I, I felt I had a good race. And the next year I was going to go for the national championship, and first race I ended up. Um, uh, eight days of intensive care and three months at home. Oh, no. So, oh You know, you don't want to hit something that hard. It's, uh, <laughs> it wasn't pleasant. It's, so, not,
1: it's not the speed that kills. <laughs> it's the de- sudden deceleration. <laughs> you
2: know, we were talking about that the other day. Uh, a bunch of us who, who were into racing uh, a gentleman mm. really got messed up in Atlanta last weekend and mm. the throttle stuck going into turn one and he never got off of it. And <laughs> A digital speedometer before he hit showed 116 miles an hour. Oh, really good Lord. But when you're strapped in, you know, when I got out of the car at, at Sebring, when I tried to get out of the car, uh, the floor was buckled, the roof was buckled, the engine was moved to the right. And um, uh, I learned a couple of lessons that day. Uh, one, you, the, the the harnesses and, and uh, the Hans, I didn't have a Hans device, and they didn't even have it. Um, they'll hold you in place, but your guts are still going along. Uh, <laughs> oh, uh, <God. laughs> oh my god! Oh, my wow. heart came from the inside, and the, the harness pulled back and it busted my sternum. Uh,
3: oh, long oh,
2: long. good lord! Oh, I, it was—it was kind of strange. It's a long story. I'm not going to go into it. I finally got past this guy had been my nemesis, and I said, "Well, I'm going to put more space between me and him, and he's ever seen." Mm-hmm. You know, a madman and i was closing on an rx7 and i noticed his right rear wheel wobbled and the axle broke and he's and you know that old rule go where he is when you see him because he's not going to be there when you get there Mm -hmm. (laughs) i violated that rule i had all this concrete in the world i decided i'll just swing white and keep my foot in it and uh, the first thing i said to myself when i saw that mazda go off the side was First overall, first in class. And then he came back across the track sideways. And the next thing I remember saying was, this is really (laughs) going (laughs) to hurt. It did. It did.
1: Any idea how fast you were going when you hit him?
2: No. It was pretty much flat out in third gear, which probably would have been, well, when I saw him, it was probably 80 or 90 miles an hour, and I scrubbed off some speed. But uh, it was a very unpleasant encounter. It it sounds
1: like it. It sounds god-awful. Uh, it, apparently, it didn't discourage you too much, though. You're still racing at almost 80 years old. Uh,
2: yeah, boy, I've been racing for a year. And uh, my friend Tom Neal, who used to run uh, Camaros and Corvettes and, and GTO, this new series called the Firehawk came out. And he called me up and said, let's get a Camaro and go Firehawk racing. So my dear wife said to me, Jane said, uh, you really miss racing, don't you? I said, yeah, but, you know. Got a wife and three kids, and that Sebring thing wasn't very good. She said, well, just buy a lot of insurance. Let's go racing.
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> we got a Camaro, and, and uh, I did about nine years of that, and uh, did it, one GTO race in, in Tom Neal's Camaro. And, uh, I never really had the resources, nor the time. You're raising three kids, running a business in the Air Force Reserve. I mean, there's just so many days in a week. What are you driving now? Uh a variety of things. Um uh, I <laughs> my trusty Chevy Suburban. I love General Motors uh sport utility vehicles or, or SUVs. I have a Suburban's 22 years old. You can't kill it. And I don't want to get rid of it because it's one of the few with a 502. which <laughs> option. And then I've got a um uh an S550 and a, a new C8 Corvette. Oh, good. Oh, sweet. Uh,
1: I'm a huge Corvette fan. What are you driving on the track? I should have clarified.
2: Oh, um, I got a couple of things. Uh, I had the the Group 44 Triumph TR6 for 28 years. I love that car. That was, getting in that car was like putting on an old shoe. And it was really, it was, you know, it wasn't fast, but it was quick. If you know what I mean? Yeah. It, handled it was balanced it was tricked out uh as only group 44 could do it uh it was so different from any other triumph that was out there there was no contest and one day i was running a race at amelia island on the airport and uh, ray Evernham and and uh, tommy riggins were out there with me and i came in they said we don't want to see you driving this car anymore and i had a real good dice with bob lightsinger wonderful guy
3: and uh, bob used to run
2: Dotson's and uh, and imsa and uh, they said, I said, why? He says, you got that little tiny seat. You got a single roll bar. If you get in trouble, you're going to be really hurt. And about that time, Adam Carolla had called me a couple of times, wanted to buy the car, so I did a deal with him. But I got the TR8 uh, Trans Am IMSA car. Uh, there were two of those built. Uh, this one won uh, the GTO race Daytona 1980, the finale race. Finished second a lot of times because Bob Tullius was in the other car and he was the boss who paid the bill, so you never passed him. So Bill Adam finished second like five times. About. <laughs> and, uh, I, I bought a couple of years ago from Dom, uh, John Truslove in, in the UK, one of the original Banjo Matthews Camaros from the IROC series, the okay. Alan Sir Mario Andretti car. In fact, it was Alan Sir Mario Andretti, Jody Schechter, Jackie Eakes, uh, Cale Yarborough. Uh, Neil Bonnet and Johnny Rutherford all drove that car in the IROC, to to drop a few names. (laughs) Sounds like a murderer's room. And then I bought back from uh, Charlie McCarthy uh, one of the cars I drove in the Firehawk, a Camaro. It was one of the trick ones from General Motors that Bill Mitchell had built. And um, (laughs) the, the one we had the most fun with. I went on Bring a Trailer one time. Y- y'all do Bring a Trailer, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, Brad is a big
1: I, one on I, that I did,
2: Dad and I are you both guilty. Yeah.
1: We've, we've bought several things there.
2: I see this Pontiac Trans Am, A sedan car, and it started life as a player's championship or, an MC or a, 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 what do you call it, a Firehawk or escort car, then converted to an A sedan. And it had a pretty good record. And I said, yeah, I just bid on it. What the heck? I'm not going to get it. So I got it, fifteen grand. I get <laughs> Bill Bryan in Orlando said, I got a motor, a spare motor. Send it to you. gave it gave me a Dart motor, and we took it up to Savannah Race Engineering, and uh, uh, Wayne Brown built us a motor to put out about just under six hundred horsepower. So, uh, we go to Daytona with this car. I mean, it is a junkyard dog. I mean, it it's all original from the nineties, and you know the. the the paint isn't fresh, and but it's just like it was. Got a dry sump motor in it. And so we called Hoosier and said, uh, hey, we're going to run this car, and this is how much it weighs. And we'll be at Daytona. What what pressure should we run? And they said, well, you know, put a little bit more in the right rear, maybe 38 pounds, and maybe 28 in the left front, and you'll be all right. So we go out, and this car will go 180 miles an hour. We're blowing past <laughs> guys. I love blowing away these gold chain Gucci guys, you know, and they're, they're <laughs> whatever it is or their Porsche or whatever it is with this, this Pontiac. And uh, my uh, my crew chief, uh, Steve Boyle, came up. I uh, came in. He says, hey, have, uh, you read the speed rating on the side of the tire? I said, no. Why should I? He says, one yeah, it's 160. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Oopsie. So, we Oopsie. Uh, the first race, we, we finished 11th one year and uh, second in class. And the next year we finished six overall first in class because no one wanted to drive in the ring. But, you know, you just <laughs> slow down and start breaking in a straight line and make your movements a little bit more uh, fluid. What do you think is the
1: biggest change you've seen since you've started racing?
2: Well, originally in SCCA, uh, we'd tow there and get there uh, Friday uh unload the trailer get all the stuff out you know if we were lucky we got a practice session on friday more likely than not we'd have a practice session saturday morning and then a regional you could sort the car out hey, we wouldn't run the whole i wouldn't run the whole regional race and then sunday was your national and you go home now these guys show up at 18 wheelers rigs with you know factory built cars and i mean i don't know how i don't know who affords it or how they afford it nowadays to be honest with you we were. I was towing them behind a uh, Oldsmobile station wagon with an open trailer, <laughs> and with a little stub on the front where I'd set a uh, set of four tires and haul the toolbox in the back of the old. That was it. Uh, so the uh,
1: just the money
2: entry level and the money is is crazy now. In vintage racing, it used to be you had to have a true vintage car. And I'm on the committee at, at uh, Monterey, and we're really getting strict about that. But a lot of these other uh, circuits, it's a run what you grown. You know, you can pull a car out of a junkyard and make it a quote-unquote vintage racer. And I think it's made it uh, too affordable and too easy to get into. The licensing requirements are not very much in vintage racing. You go to Skip Barber School, get your certificate, pay the price, you get a license.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: back in the old days in the SCCA, You'd go to driver's school. You'd go to a regional. You'd have to check in with the uh, clerk of the court and, t- course and tell them you're going out. And they would observe you. And you'd do three or six races. And then you'd get your national. Uh, and then after six races of the national, you could apply for an FIA or something like that. But it was structured. And they were really safety uh, qualified. They mm-hmm. safety concerned. Uh, nowadays it seems to lack, I mean, you go to a driver's school and all of a sudden you got a McLaren M8F, you know, go explain that to me.
0: <laughs> so talks.
1: how, how, what year should a vintage car be? I mean, how new will they let you run now versus what do you think it ought to be?
2: Well, that's a good question. Cause when I bought the TR six, I was running in a firehawk race, bought it from Tommy Ciccone, who was Paul Newman's partner. It was the ex Newman car. And then it went, it wouldn't qualify. That was in 84, and the car was built in 71. So it was, uh, by those standards, it was fairly new. Generally speaking, 25 years, but you go to a vintage race now, you'll see one of the uh, Audi prototypes or, you know, stuff that just truly isn't vintage, but it's got no other place to go. That's the problem.
1: Okay. Well, it it does seem like... If you were going to draw, and I don't want to call it an arbitrary line, but I would say something around mid-90s, the technology had changed so much that those are semi-modern cars. It seems like it should be older than that.
2: Well, I have a friend who will go nameless, and he called me one day and said, I want to go finish racing. I said, okay, how old are you now? He said, I'm 68. He said, well, why don't you rent a car from Phil Bagley? Down in Palm Beach, night 11 Go see if you want to do this. Go to school and then see if you want to do this. You you may find out you don't want to do this. You may get <laughs> door, door handles with some guys that this is stupid. I'm not going to do it. No 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 no. I want to go racing. I say, well get get a nice sports 2000. They're simple. You know they they got you can get one with the ground effects. The bodies come off easily, so you can work on them. They're lightweight. They're inexpensive. Get one 30, 35 grand. They got, they got a little Pinto engine. Pinto engine. Pinto, pinto engine.
3: Said,
2: no, no, no. <laughs> Man, these cars are quick. You know, in the TR8, I'd get around Savannah to one fifteen at Sport two thousand. Probably get around at one thirteen with a little two liter two point three liter motor. No, 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 no. So I don't hear from him. Two weeks later, he called back. to bought a race car. I said, oh. really, what'd you get? He says, Brian Redman's Formula 5000 Lola championship car. <laughs> I said, Do you have a death wish. <laughs> he said, oh, you can come to Savannah and drive it. I said, nope, 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 nope. You understand. Don't want to drive it. So he called my buddy, Henry Wilkinson, who I used to race against. And Henry's a good driver. He used to drive McLaren and offers it to Henry. Henry said, I'm not getting in that car. me call Brian Redman. Brian said, no, I dodged death 40 years ago. Why am I going to get that? Car? No kidding. <laughs> Well, he eventually sold it, uh, and wisely. So, and, and this gets back to the point: it's too easy to get in. You know, uh, you got to work your way up. Yeah, it's more fun to drive an underpowered car fast than a fast car.
1: Always, always more fun to drive a slow car fast than it is to drive a fast car slow. Exactly. We've had speaking of going fast, we've had a number of current of the current cannonball brethren on the show, yeah. including Ed Bullion, Doug Tabit, John Ficarra, Travis Bell, Christopher Michaels, and at one time uh, after Ficarra organized the Musketball 101 last year, we had a whole mess of them on at one time. Can you tell us a little bit about racing in the Cannonball Bakers Sea to Shining Sea Memorial Trophy Dash?
3: Yeah,
2: I, I did the 75. Rock. Brock would come to Jacksonville before uh, Daytona, and we'd all go go-kart racing. We'd rent a track, and <laughs> Hurley would come out, and Brock Yates, and uh, John Graves, who, who drove with Hurley in the 24-hour. and Sometimes Peter Gregg would come out, but he was much too aloof for us. And Bob Snodgrass, <laughs> who ran Brumo. So we'd rent the track, and then Brock said he was going to do a cannonball. I said, well, I've never been to California. It sounded like a good reason to go. So I had a, still have it. I've got a 71 911 that I bought new. And we put a 31-gallon fuel tank in it, a CB radio, and a, a buzz buster. And we <laughs> had something very unique uh, to help us get across country. It was called a road map. I don't know if you've ever seen <laughs> one.
1: I, I'm old enough to have seen those.
0: Oh. Did you have to flip like, your phone open to look at that one? Uh-huh. Oh, okay. <laughs> you have to unfold
2: it. Oh! Uh, so my co-driver was Tom Neal, who I used to race Camaros with, and we leave New York around seven o'clock in the Red Ball Garage, and I'm beating it through New Jersey, and we get down to uh, Harrisburg. It's pouring rain, and we knew the police were going to be out looking for us in uh, Ohio and Indiana, so we cut down Harrisburg down to Knoxville and cut across, which was a stupid thing to do. If you if you had the electronic nowadays, you'd know it was two hours longer, and uh, we get to Virginia. It's about two o'clock in the morning. I said, ah, time for you to take over, Tom, so he gets in, and uh, we were about five miles, and his head goes.
3: Oh no. oh no! Oh
2: no! Drive at night. I said, "Oh, thank you very much." You <laughs> know, we just, we only got twenty five hundred more miles to go. So,
3: uh,
2: I drove. Uh, let's see, New York to Knoxville. He drove New York uh Knoxville. I think somewhere west, west of Little Rock, and I drove from somewhere west of Little Rock to Needles, California. Oh my! At that time I was pretty wiped out. We're coming into the needles. The sun's coming up, and he finally woke up and <laughs> slowing down. He says, "Why are you slowing down?" It says, "The guy crossed the road up there." He says, "There's no guy there. It's time for you to drive." <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> and, uh, the cannonball kind of got. I was going to do it one more time, and it just didn't work out timing wise. So when Brock came out with one lap of America. Uh, I decided to do that. And we were going to do a story for Road and Track, so we took Ennis Ireland along. If you remember Ennis,
3: mm-hmm.
2: Lotus and George Drolson, who I used to race against in IMSA, and Dick Starita, who I used to race against in, in uh, SECa. So the four of us, we 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 went to Audi and asked for a car, and they said no. Then we went to Mercedes to see if they'd loan us a car, and they said no. So we went to Hertz and rented a. Unlimited mileage Lincoln town car.
3: <laughs> but,
2: you know, got up to Bill Mitchell's shop in Cheshire, Connecticut, and added, uh, Ennis knew Walter Hayes at Ford, who was president of Ford, and he used to race for Walter when Walter was in the UK. And they sent us heavy-duty springs and shocks and all that stuff, so we converted the Hertz car to a road racer, put a fuel oh. bladder in the trunk and a portable TV, and back in those days, we didn't have cell phones. We had Motorola Pulsar 2. There was a radio telephone. And this was a bordello red Lincoln town car with crushed velour interior. Oh,
3: oh
0: man. And it was the velour red also, so it just looked like a big stake all, on all, wheels? It was all red. It, oh, it, God. It looked like something that uh, uh,
2: you'd go to the cheapest hotel in Las Vegas with. You know? <laughs> so, rich. so We left Darien, Connecticut, went to Darien, Uh, Boston, got our ticket stamped, went to uh, Detroit and Seattle, got the ticket stamped, and then went to Los Angeles. We had about a six-hour rest period. I didn't really want it. Then we went to San Diego, El Paso, Houston, New Orleans, uh, Miami, Jacksonville, Richmond, and and back, I think it was seven driving days, something like that.
1: Wow, that's a lot of time in that car.
2: Oh, but... We put uh, 9,610 miles on the car at $39 <laughs> a day. I mean, it was cheap to, to go in and that's the car's corner at uh, 960 miles out, 10,160 in or whatever it was. And he said, well, you had it eight days, you, you owe us $320. So Ennis put it on his Pan Am card to get bonus points
3: <laughs>
2: and to add insult to injury. So I think we're, <laughs> I may be part of the team that's personally responsible for the Elimination of the unlimited mileage clause.
3: <laughs> it was you. But now we war. know who to blame. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: someone said, "Boy, that had to be fun." I said, "No, no." Well, the instructions were: go to Boston, turn left. Go to Seattle, turn left. Go to San Diego, turn left. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't like it took a whole lot of brains to do this.
1: Almost <laughs> ten thousand miles in a uh, in a. a a built-up pimp wagon is what
2: it sounds yeah. like. <laughs> My was uh, from Brumos was in a jeep, and as we're pulling oh. out, we didn't know it, but he 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 stuck a sign on the back that said, "boy boy wanted inquire within." We,
3: we oh, God! <laughs> oh!
2: <laughs> the vent hose from the fuel bladder came loose and soaked all our fuel in ninety-three octane Amico. So, <laughs> ate anywhere we had to eat in the no smoking
1: section (laughs) (laughs) yeah you still collect and restore your own cars and i've i've seen a little bit of your collection uh what all do you have right now do you have a favorite i think you got three favorites from what i've seen and uh is there something you still have your eyes on is there one you haven't done yet
2: uh, yeah, I'm working on two right now. I haven't told my wife yet. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we won't tell her. We promise. But, uh, in the shop, I, I I never
2: cared for Cadillacs when I was a kid. But nowadays, I love the uh, wretched excess that is represented by a 50s Cadillac. I got yes. a 50s Eldorado Barrett oh. and a 57 Eldorado Seville, two-door oh. and, and, and Converto convertible. That's kind of a funny story. It's in uh, uh, Wayne Carini's magazine, The Chase. Uh, The Seville was advertised as Bahama Blue. Well, I have a Bahama Blue convertible. And so I said, well, I'll have a Bahama Blue convertible. Bahama Blue blue two-door hardtop. Well, it gets here, and it ain't the same blue. Uh, Cadillac did two metallic colors that year, one called Tahoe Blue and one called Bahama Blue. And if you drove one down the street and then got the other one and drove it back, no one would know the difference. But you park them side by side, you can see it. I sent Mark Royce up at General Motors a, a message. I said, why would you have two blues that close? And the answer came back, whatever Bill Mitchell wanted back then, he got. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes,
1: he did. And, and Royce may not have been born in 1957,
2: was he? Uh, he's 59 now. So, no, not quite. <laughs> uh, I got a 58 Eldorado Dorado Brome that uh, reputedly belonged to Ricky Nelson. I've chased it back where it was sold in Los Angeles. On a, uh, like a zone office delivery, which tells you it's someone special, but I don't have. It. Actually, Dick Messer from the Peterson Museum said he remembers Ricky Nelson driving a black Eldorado bro when, when Dick was an extra on the an Ozzy and Harriet show. So it could very well be. It's, uh, there weren't that many made, only 350 stainless yeah. steel roofs. And then I, I, I had a weak moment in a parking lot at a Lowe's. My guy drove in in the most bizarre looking seventy one Buick boat tail Riviera, all black black wall tires. It looked like Darth Vader just driven it up, and I succumbed to that one. I told him if you ever want to sell it, call me and two years later he called me and got that and then I always loved the sixty three Riviera, so I restored one of those and uh, I got one of my firehawk Camaro and the uh Group 44 TR8, and the IROC Camaro, the the Allenser Mario Andretti car, and uh, a Ferrari Daytona, and my 911, which I've had 52 years. Oh, wow. A 2.7 Carrera motor, and then uh, uh, a Ford GT, and the C8 Corvette, and the Pontiac race car. Oh, I forget my crown jewel uh, from Buddy Pep. In California, I've got an original 32 Ford Highboy oh, Roadster cool. built in <laughs> Fresno in 1950. So it's the real deal.
1: Very cool. Very very parking.
2: cool. Yeah,
3: and
2: it's it 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 just looks evil sitting here. It's painted Washington blue, and you know the windshield's only about four inches tall. It looks like it's grimacing when it comes at you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> very cool stuff. Uh, I. I'm such a Corvette fiend. I got to ask you how you like your new
2: Corvette. The C8 is probably the best new car I've ever owned. It's fabulous. I mean, it does everything you want it to do. Today I went to lunch with a friend of mine. who just took delivery on his Z06 and, uh, my car, when I bought it, it was the second one delivered to uh, Mark Royce worked with us. And we, we did a thing on mid engine Corvettes at Amelia and, uh, uh, I told him I'd like to buy one. We'll do the, the feature and have it on the field. So he arranged for me to get the second one. Rick Hendrick got the first one, paid $3 million for it. I saved $2,920,000 buying the second <laughs> <laughs> The gearbox is terrific. We've we've taken it up to Nashville over to Hilton Head. Uh, I got about 20,000 20, miles on it. It's it's so much more practical than the Ford GT. Uh, the Ford yeah. GT you can pack a toothbrush. The Corvette <laughs> the trunk and a trunk. Uh, every all the panels fit beautifully. Um, I ordered it that uh, color. They discontinued. Unfortunately, it was called uh, shadow gray, and I had them do the monochrome. You know, I don't like that big black flash. On yeah,
1: the yeah, I agree. Uh, I've specked them out a couple times, and I want all that exterior trim painted.
2: Yeah, it's a good good deal. So you got one?
1: No, not yet. Uh, I still got a sixty and a sixty-five in my garage. One of those has to go before I can get a C-eight.
2: Well, I tell you what, it, it, they're just—they're comfortable. The uh, infotainment center works. You can make it as loud as you want it or as quiet as you want it. I—I I usually, when I get up early in the morning, I always make it as loud as I want it if I'm going to be up so is my neighbors. <laughs> <laughs> You're that guy. <laughs>
3: yeah.
2: no, this
1: uh, this is why we love him. Yeah,
3: absolutely.
2: <laughs> you'd, you'd go a long way to find a better car. And someone said, "Well, it's great for the money." No, it's a great car. Period. Money. Yeah. yeah.
1: What did you uh, What would you think of the Z06?
2: <laughs> I liked everything about it except he told me what he paid for it, which was like 160. I said, "That's nearly twice, nearly twice what I paid for a C8." And
1: that's cheap for one of those right now.
2: Well, here's what I wanted to ask you. All right, now they just announced the E Ray. Yes. As fast, if not faster, than the Z06. So, all these guys who plunked down extra bucks to get a Z06, how do they feel now with the E Ray coming out at about the same price? Yeah. And you know. You know what GM's next step's going to be? They're going to put the flat crank motor in the hybrid, and it'll be called a Zora or something like yeah,
3: that.
1: Yeah, uh, they'll put the flat, flat crank with twin turbos in it and then boost up the hybrid part of it, and it'll yeah. be 1,000 horsepower and the stupidest thing ever. And that's all I'll ask Santa Claus for that year.
2: Well, uh, you look at the American voter, and you know how stupid everybody is. You're going to give them 1,000 horsepower car, right? hmm yeah. My car's got like 495 horsepower, and it's 0-60, 2.9 9 top speed, 195. Uh, I hope you're not surprised to know that I've never done both of them.
3: Yeah. <laughs> <You know.
1: laughs> uh, 65 Corvette, that's a 327, 4-speed, has side pipes and knockoff wheels. Uh, it's not real quick, but it feels like you're doing something wrong when you're driving legal speeds. It's a yeah. ball.
2: A Cooper, a roadster?
1: It's a roadster. It's a ragtop. What color? Uh, Nassau blue with a blue interior.
2: Ah, kill me. Uh, <laughs>
1: I'll send you pictures.
2: A small block, four-speed Nassau blue with lift-off hard top.
1: Yep. Uh, well, uh, it, no hard top, but it's got a soft top, and uh, it's it's blue over blue. It's the car I wanted, and I searched for for a long, long time.
2: It, it just text me your your garage address. Uh, yeah, <laughs> uh,
1: we're moving in a week, so I'll show. I'll tell you where the new place is.
2: <laughs> that, is that is the most beautiful combination of that series Corvette you can get. Blue I sure on- think so. Oh yeah. Oh my. In
1: 1996, yeah. you founded the Amelia Island Concours Gans. What spurred you to put on a Concours, and what was that first year like?
2: Uh, what spurred me on? Uh, a six pack of Guinness, I think. <laughs>
0: Wow, that tracks.
2: <laughs> I can relate. <laughs> the PR lady at the Ritz-Carlton, I had the kind of reputation for being a car weenie in town, and they wanted to do a show. And I said, well, you know, I've been selling filters for all the years and doing the car stuff. I said, you know, I thought we I had confidence I could do it. Um, confidence is the feeling you have when you don't truly understand the situation. <laughs>
0: also true <laughs> first year I I got
2: uh Sterling Moss as the honoree and and that was kind of a test year you know we we didn't really know what we were doing I didn't know what I was doing and then one day I looked on the field and I said you know why don't we build a show around a racing personality and bring in the cars of their career
3: oh Bill
2: so and and uh Carol Shelby and early Haywood and Brian Redman and Hans stook and
3: mm-hmm. and
2: uh uh you know, Jochen Moss and Richard Petty and Bobby Allison. And we went on and on and on. Wow. And I i told uh, Justin Bell the other day, I said, you know what? For me, this was like if you were a baseball fan and you were close friends with Mickey Mantle or Roger Maris. I mean, they all became friends. We we socialized together. And it, it's been a dream for me. And I think what we did was we took guys who were really good uh, A-game players, and when they retired, I, I think maybe some people thought they forgot them. So we wanted to celebrate their life, and that's, that's what we did at Amelia. And we had two fairways, so I said, okay, we'll do sports cars and race cars on this side and classics on the other. And a friend of mine who is from Paris says, uh, this is not right. You can have only one best in show. I said, no, we got two fairways. We got, you can't compare a GTO against the Duesenberg SSJ." So we did two awards concord the sport concord delegate and now uh, other shows are doing it now but we i think we were the first to do the dual awards but i always wanted to have fun with it you know um i'd always have a goofy class every year it may be cars of big daddy Roth. it may be uh cars we had one class what were they thinking one year i got all the cowboy cars with the horns and the silver dollars and all that stuff you always wanted to have a class to entertain people who didn't care about cars, right?
3: Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah.
2: You drag your wife out. You're going to go to a car show. I don't want to go to a car show. And they get there, and they see Big Daddy Ross beating Nick bandit. Everybody has to smile at that car, right? Absolutely. So I'd always do a goofy class. And uh, I think that's what kind of set us apart. I got where people were calling me, and saying, what's what's the goofy class this year? We've got to show up to see it. Nice. But, We did one called, What Were They Thinking?, where I went out and got the ugliest cars they could find, you know, a spawn-bodied Mercury uh, from uh, Wayne Carini, uh, a Graham Page that was built to look like a locomotive from 1920s movie at 20th Century Fox. So I worked real hard at getting stuff that no one had ever seen before, would probably never see again. And uh, I would say the best one I did was I was with, uh, Donald Osborne doing the a amelia. Mean, he was doing the meal and We were at a rest area and he showed me a trophy. He says, you see that car that won this trophy? And I said, wow, what if we could get all the great trophies together with the cars that ran them? So I called Ellen Byerly at the Indy Museum. I said, can we have the, the, uh, Borg Warner trophy? She said, yeah. I said, do you know where the Wheeler Schradler trophy is? Cause that was the trophy before the Borg Warner. Six feet tall of, of, Sterling Silver. She says we got that too and we got the race of 2 Worlds with Jim Rathman. I said, "Well, I know Rathman. will get one of his cars up here." So we had uh the 199 German Grand. Uh we had the 199 Indianapolis Race. It wasn't the 500. We had uh uh the uh Indy 500 Borg-Warner Trophy, the Wheeler-Chevrolet Trophy, the 199 uh, German Grand Prix Trophy. Uh Luigi Canetti gave us the uh First Ferrari win, 1949, and the last Ferrari win, 1966, trophies that his dad had. And then we had the, I, I called my friend um, uh, Joey Chitwood down at the Daytona Speedway. and said, here's what Indy's doing for us. What are you going to do for me? So said, <laughs> <laughs> well, you got to do that, you know. So he said, well, we got the Borg-Warner trophy. We got two sizes, a small one and a large one. Which one do you want? I said, well, I want the large one. So it came in the trailer. You know, so we... I, I I spent 20 grand getting plexiglass cabinets built for all of them and put them in the lobby of the Ritz-Carlton. So when you walked in, the first thing you saw were these trophies. We even had the, the Morris G. Bauer trophy from the Cannonball. You know, a little bit of everything. The Race of Two Worlds from Monza, Le Mans, everything. All these fabulous trophies. And when you walked in the hotel, it was like someone sucked you in the nose. What no one knew was I had sourced out cars that won each one of those trophies. So you went on the field on Sunday, next to the the uh, uh, Harley Earl Trophy from Daytona was Richard Petty's uh, Daytona winning Dodge. Wow. And then next to the uh, Borg Warner Trophy was Alancer's Johnny Lightning Special. Next to the 199 German Grand Prix Trophy was the Collier's 199 Mercedes that won it. So that was a lot of work to do, but it. I tell you what, I don't think anybody will ever do that again. It
1: sounds like a staggering presentation.
2: Yeah. yeah. I, I was very, very proud of that.
1: You sold the Amelia Island Concord d'Elegance to Haggerty last year.
2: Uh, yeah, I got I to gotta clarify that a little bit. You can't sell a foundation. We were a charitable foundation. All right. So we turned the foundation over to them. They made a contribution to the, the foundation to be distributed to our charity. Are you still and in? Are you still they, involved with it? No, no. they bought the brand, the Amelia brand and okay. the uh, the intellectual property. So you have two things. You have the Concord, the foundation, which you can't sell. That goes and continues in their foundation. Then you got the brand, which included the, the contracts with the hotels and the golf course and all that other stuff. So that, that's what, that's what was sold.
1: Yeah. Did you get to enjoy it more this year or was it a different feel for you?
2: It's a different feel. Um, I I kind of looked like I kind of looked on myself as being like a movie or television director when I was at the stand with with the boom mic and I was connected to all guys on the field. Uh, I was I was calling the signals. I want this car, that car, bring this one up, stop that one. You know, hold this. It was always it was a real goat rope. But on on the it's like the old duck going across the pond, right? You see the car cruise up, but I'm yelling, and screaming at people on the radio. I want this, I want that, and I had a great team. They they knew exactly what I wanted when I wanted it, and we ran 114 cars through in four hours, Wow. and uh, that was that was uh, uh, at at the end of the day I was wiped out. I I wouldn't go anywhere. I sometimes I'd go out to dinner with one of the honorees. Other times I would just go in the hotel room and go to sleep because it was so intense. Yeah, it would have to be. But I wanted I wanted it to be entertaining to people. Uh, I had one miss, I had one disappointment. Uh, I had a guy who will be nameless who was working for it. He says, I want, I want to do the, the car presentation. I, said, I, I don't, I don't think you're ready for that yet. I mean, this is, this is, uh, high intensity and you got to get in the zone. You can't let anybody talk to you. You can't do anything if you, you're hammering, getting every car up. Everything has got to roll in a minute and a half. Everything has got to be in the right order. Um, you know, and, the, and the, you have to get the, uh, uh, the information sheets, the announcer, so he knows what he's talking about when a car comes up. It, it's boom, 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 boom for four straight hours. So I said, I'll tell you what, we do a fashion show in the morning where I would pick one car from every decade from the 1900s up to the 1970s. And then I'd get with the director of the art institute, the fashion institute in Jacksonville and she and I would sit down and I'd have three cars from each decade and we'd sit and I'd say, what what strikes you? What can you do with this from a fashion standpoint? And we'd pick cars and then we'd put them together. Well, one year we had, we did a class called Cars of the Movies, and we had the James Bond Aston Martin from Harry Agui, and we had the 275 GTB from the Thomas Crown Affair, and we had the the Chevy Impala from Ray Everingham that was in uh, American Graffiti. We had a great selection of movie cars, terrific. So I said we we picked the Aston Martin up. We had The fashion model was a girl in a gold lame bikini, and she was covered in gold from top to bottom, like Dink from the movie Goldfinger. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, So I tell the guy, okay, now I'm going to let you run this. I'm going to be over here doing some other stuff. But when you see that Goldfinger car come up, when you see it staging, I want you to radio over to the sound system guy and tell him I want full game. I want as loud as he can get it. I want the leaves to fall off the trees. I want the seagulls to take (laughs) off. I want everybody to know that Shirley Bassey is singing Goldfinger, and she has a voice that would cut through steel. Like, yeah. you know, when 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 Shirley Bassey goes, Goldfinger, boy, I mean, it just makes your <laughs> skin crawl. He missed it. Oh.
3: <laughs>
2: the car comes through, and the Goldfinger number is playing down here, and I said, what's wrong? Well, I forgot. I said, well, if you can't do eight cars, you can't do 114. Yeah. So yeah. That was a one time thing. We'll never have that car back again, you know? Uh, uh and you gotta remember you you you're not only presenting cars and the history of cars. I looked on the, the uh, fairways at Amelia as being my uh my 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 uh, canvas. And every year I was gonna paint a different picture. I wanted to tell a story of cars. You have to tell a story, you just don't park cars out there. And uh, uh you do something like Cars of the Movies, the Great Ah, uh, hunting cars, the uh, Big Daddy Roth cars, the uh, the lead sled Mercuries with George Barris. You have to do something that's entertaining because not only are you in the in the historical business on cars, you're in the entertainment business too.
1: You did amazing philanthropic work with the charitable organizations you supported with the Concours. Uh, can you discuss some of those organizations?
2: Sure. Um, the first organization was community hospice and palliative care for people who are terminally ill. And I told him, uh, you know, this was all a volunteer operation when it started out that whatever money we raised would go towards community hospice. Uh, later we expanded it and uh, we have a granddaughter that was born spina bifida, which is a terrible
3: yeah. uh,
2: birth defect. Yeah. Uh, there's all sorts of stages of spina bifida from not being able to walk to there, there's mental concerns. Uh, there's uh most of these people can never hold down a job. Uh, so we started giving to uh, spina bifida, which is what the charity I'm working on now. Uh, we did Navy and Marine Corps uh, relief Fund for uh, uh, service members who may have a, a need to go home for whatever, you know, a death in the family or something. And yeah. they'd have the money to do that. We did shop with cops program for underprivileged children where we would give money to the uh uh, police department and the county force, and they would partner officers with underprivileged children, take them Christmas shopping,
3: oh. and
2: that was very moving because these these kids who have nothing, and yeah. they may have one parent if they're lucky, and they 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 own nothing. So you give them two hundred dollars, for example, and a hundred dollars had to be spent on essentials. Mm-hmm. Other hundred dollars was was uh, discretionary. And to a kid, they always bought something for their brother, their sister, their their mom. They never spent it on themselves. And I tell you what, you just wanted to cry when you saw it. But nice. we wanted the money to stay in the community and go to soft charities. I'm, I'm not real high on brick and stone charities. I'm real high on charities that really help people.
1: On behalf of the uh, the sailors that you helped, with the sailors and marines, I thank you. Uh, in 2016, along with Tom Cotter, you authored Cuba's Car Culture. That book was awarded a silver medal by the International Automotive Media Competition. Can you tell us a little bit about that book and the research that went into it?
2: Yeah. Well, what happened was uh, the first year when we did Sterling Moss, we didn't really do a good job because we didn't have we didn't have the uh, the vision for matching the drivers up to the cars, So when we came up to the, uh, our 20th anniversary, uh, Sterling had, uh, that was the 50th anniversary of his victory in Cuba in the birdcage Maserati. And I said, well, why don't we have Sterling back this time we're gonna have as many cars of his as we could get. And I think we had nearly 30, including the birdcage that he won, uh, John Fiber that he won uh, Cuba with. So, I decided if if I was going to do this I better go to Cuba and research some to make sure we got it right and uh so on the internet uh one of our employees pointed out that they did have a museum with a, a young man named uh, uh Eduardo uh Macejo and he was in charge of the uh museum so I contacted him through the internet and and then I uh, applied to the uh Office of Offshore Asset Controls of the Treasury Department, who would give you a a, a pass to go to Cuba, because it wasn't open at that time. Right. To American tourists. So uh, 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 Congressman John Campbell from uh, Costa Mesa, California, is a good friend, a car guy. And he went to bat for me and got that paperwork, marched through. And so I called Tom and I said, and Dick Messer from the Peterson Museum and Scott George, from uh, the Collier Collection, and uh, Neil Rashbaugh, our photographer from here in town, we all went down to Cuba. And the first trip was kind of a water haul. Uh, we didn't know anybody. We didn't know anything. We were suspect. You know, what are these Americans doing here? What are they looking for? Are they trying to steal our cars? No, 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 no. We were, We were researching how the Cubans mostly about the race, and then how do the Cubans keep all these cars going? And it turns out with Russian diesel tractor engines. But uh, <laughs> Tom and I thought, well, this this is going to be good basis for a book, and Tom's a great writer. So uh, he went down with me one more time, and I went three more times. And finally found somebody who was pretty well connected, found a couple of 300 SLs down there, both of them rotted to the core, a uh, Chrysler Ghia Coupe, um a um, um couple of Corvettes. One you'd love, uh, Brett. It was a fifty four Corvette that had been crashed and the Cubans had duplicated the front end in metal because they couldn't work in fiberglass. <laughs> oh my it. god. <laughs> and they hammered a whole you'd look at it and say, something doesn't look right. You know, it's got the thirteen tooth grill, It but doesn't look quite right and the headlights aren't quite right but but it looks pretty good, and it turns out it was it was metal from the windshield forward. Wow. So we, we found uh, people began to trust us, and we went out to, uh, I went with uh, Mike Sierra, a big Rolls Royce guy from Tampa, and he and his wife and I drove out to Santiago de Cuba and visited a museum there, and I, I found it was interesting. When people got your, they trusted you, they would open up, you know. We'd be sitting there, and they go, oh, Cuba's great. I get five pounds of rice, two chickens every month, you know, $20. And by the way, can you get me out of here?
0: <laughs> <laughs> Swim goggles, snorkel,
3: <laughs> some fins, fins, fins go a lot lots of way.
0: fins. <laughs> we
2: found uh, uh, Ernest Hemingway's house, went out to that tour, and he used to have a 55 Chrysler New Yorker, which was there on blocks with a gas tank in the back end.
3: Oh my God.
2: Uh, the rear seat. And it uh, turns out David Soul, the actor, had done a deal to restore that car for the Cubans. And the last time I went down there, they wouldn't talk about it, wouldn't say where it was. I couldn't see it. Very secretive. So, you know, it's a, you really appreciate the United States when you go to a place like Cuba, because I was told I was being followed, and I didn't believe them. And uh, the fifth trip, a young Cuban who was married to a, girl with a Spanish passport, she and their daughter could go to Florida on her Spanish passport, but he was Cuban, and a, he was a, a computer programmer, so he had an essential job, and they don't want to lose an essential job, so they wouldn't give him a passport, so we were in the atrium area of this hotel I was staying, at, called Park Central, and there was a mezzanine with two goons in suits with earpieces, and I figured, well, there's security, So the young man goes off the restroom and comes back. He looks shaken. I said, what's wrong? He said, guy came up to me and said, I know who you're talking to and we know what you're talking about. Whoa. So evidently every plant in the lobby of that hotel was (laughs) wired monitoring all the the conversation. Wow. And at that time, if you were Cuban and you came in to meet somebody in that uh, lobby atria area, you could not go upstairs. They would not allow you to go beyond the
0: ground floor. So it's, it's a real police state. And now we've got Google Chrome on our phones. Because <laughs> every time I say anything out loud, suddenly I've got 80 ads for it. Hmm.
2: I think that if anything ever opens up Cube, it's going to be access to the Internet. They have <laughs> access, although it's controlled. Sure. But many of the guys, I, I used to be able to call them on the phone, but somehow or other uh, I can't get through on the phone. But I can get through on Outlook Messenger. Uh, I I did one other book called The Other Side of the Fence, which is 60 Years of Motorsports Photography and uh, I'm working on maybe two more books before I reach room temperature.
1: Are you, uh, (laughs) before you give up the oxygen (laughs) habit, (laughs) uh, are you at liberty to discuss the books you're working on?
2: Well, I'm going to do another photo book. I haven't quite decided what it's going to look like. Uh, I did find out that only John Grisham makes money selling books. So, (laughs) All the proceeds from the book I did, and uh, I've given it to Spina Bifida. They're selling it on their website,
3: nice. and all
2: the money goes to Spina Bifida. Um, I I collect old negatives and think about doing a book on some historic uh, things like that. And uh, uh, my wife has been on me, but you need to write all this stuff down, some of the funny stories. Mm-hmm. One of the funniest ones was uh, in 84, I was at Sebring. And my friends, uh, Al Holbert and Michael Kaiser, were winning in a Porsche Carrera sponsored by Penthouse Magazine. Oh, Lord. Oh, God. They had the Penthouse Pet of the Year there to give the trophy, a red-headed English girl, just gorgeous. She had a green jumpsuit unbuttoned below her navel with a gold chain holding it together. So around 10 o'clock at night, the race ends at 10 or 10.30 after 11. This friend of mine, who was a press officer, John Smiley, says, you going down to Victory Lane? I said, yeah, why? He you take her she's got to give the trophy i said sure let's go so we go down the stairs and here's the penthouse pet of the year and pitch black and we go up to this gate behind the jaguar tower to go into where the presentation was going to be and the guy at the gate goes pardon me miss can i see your pass and she flashes her blouse open like that and says Well
0: these do <laughs>
2: <laughs> i finally found the universal pass i mean
0: <laughs> <laughs> well yes ma'am they will <laughs> I think, I think those will get you in anywhere. I need to put that
2: down in writing somewhere.
1: This is the question that we ask everybody at the end of the interview, and I've been dying to get to this with you. What is what is the oh, dumbest
2: thing?
0: She was 18. They dropped the charges. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> Statute of limitations. Thank you. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Yeah. I, I understand
1: 12 passes in Arkansas.
0: Oh, God. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. What is the
1: dumbest thing you've ever done in a car?
2: Oh, I uh, uh, Bob Snodgrass from Brumos called me and says, Billy, always call me Billy. I hate to be called Billy, but he can get away with it.
3: Billy, we going to do
2: a demolition derby for multiple sclerosis. <laughs> okay, out of the Jacksonville Speedway, which is a little nasty dirt track. It's, it's the kind where uh, if it was packed, the first three rows would have a cumulative ten teeth. I mean, having raced against Hurley Haywood and Bob, and I I knew how much they liked to cheat. I went out a day early and gave the guy who was sourcing the cars for the demolition derby 50 bucks to get me the biggest car he had, which turned out to be a Cadillac Coupe DeVille with 500 cubic inches. That'll work. God. So then they decide we get out there and they said, well, we got all these guys together. Why don't we have a race beforehand? No roll bar. You know, (sighs) <sighs> no windshield, nothing. And so uh, I, we drew for position. I got pole position. Well, the guy outside was Dan Davis, who was chairman of the board or chief executive officer of Win dixie Corporation. And he had a Pontiac painted up like a Richard Petty car. We all had to decorate our cars with spray cans, you know. <laughs> it was every sight. So I'm in the Cadillac, and we come around, they drop the flag, and he starts hammering on me. So I just hammer back. Well, his wheel came loose and he went airborne. And I'm looking in the mirror (laughs) and there's a powerful businessman in all of Jacksonville, and I'm going to kill him right here. (laughs) So afterwards, they have the the, the demolition derby. So the way it works is you got a straightaway. Half the cars are facing north at one end of the straightaway, and the other half is facing south. And they fire a gun, and you go backwards to the middle, right? So all these cars are coming, 10 or 15 cars, cars—going converging on the center of the track. Well, I get through. I mean, I go through all of them. I said, well, that that wasn't much of a demolition. (laughs) Let's turn around. So we're hammering on each other, and the Cadillac's pretty big, and I'm moving it around. And all of a sudden, I'm right in front of the starter stand facing it, and it stops. Well, they had drilled a hole in the roof and put a piece of welding rod in with a flag. So if your car stopped, you pushed it up and it indicated yeah. you were out. You know, they weren't. it wasn't fair to hit you anymore. So I ran it up and I'm sitting there and everybody's banging on each other behind me and I'm thinking, I wonder if it will start. So I turn the key book, starts up. So I pull the flag down. Well, that's in clear violation of all demolition derby rules. And a guy running around blowing his whistle at me and people are throwing beer cans from the grandstands. <laughs> And the only guy you know who was evicted from a demolition derby for breaking the
0: rules. <laughs> Probably the dumbest thing I ever did. That's a whole new category of done. That is the, kind of like you're getting kicked out of a garage sale, isn't it?
1: <laughs> we have been speaking with the estimable Bill Warner. Bill, can you take a moment and tell everyone where they can find you online or on social media?
3: Oh.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Smartest answer wow, ever. Damn. That is the best, best answer ever to that question. <laughs>
2: I don't have a website. I'm creating one now. Uh, it's going to be called On Track with Bill Warner. And uh, uh, but if anybody wants to reach me, reach me in the email bill Warner at bwracing.net. Nice. And always glad to hear from people and always glad to hear stories. That I've I've led a very very blessed life and uh, I tell we had some young men over the other day uh, touring the garage.
3: Uh they were from a local
2: Christian school, and some of them were from Germany, some from Canada and I always tell all the young people, "I don't care what your passion is, follow it, do it don't don't end up and I don't mean to offend anybody, but don't end up as a postal clerk you know go out, go out in life if you like tennis, be the best tennis player around, be the best tennis photographer around, do something, but do what you want to do because life is short, and I tell you what the last. 80 years have just blown by like a missile.
1: Bill, I can't thank you enough for being on with us tonight.
0: Thanks, Brett and Mark. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. Uh,
2: The
1: wonderful and estimable Mr. Bill
0: Warner. Be sure to mention it's a 200th show. I don't think we mentioned that. No,
1: it is our 200th show. And, you know, if you remember back, our 100th show, we managed to get Camillo Pardo on and talk about the Ford GT and all of that good stuff. I've been wanting to have Bill on since we started doing the show. Finally caught him for our 200th show. So that that puts a, a fantastic cherry right on you top.
0: Know, and what a down-to-earth guy, because uh, quite honestly, I was expecting this is from Amelia Island, so I would keep my pinky extended while I you know ran the keyboard. No. And no, what a down-to-earth and no. fun
1: dude. Bill is a fantastic guy, and again, wanted to have him on from the very jump, so we finally got him. Bill, we can't thank you enough. Amen. We, we appreciate it, and what great stories. And, what everybody doesn't know, I did mention this at the beginning of the interview. You should see his resume, oh my goodness, <laughs> he's done everything. I really wanted to ask him about so much more stuff, which gives me fuel for having him on having him on again, hopefully, yeah, but uh he's just had a full life, and man, what a the consummate car guy he's done a little bit of everything. Thank you so much for spending time with Driven Radio. We love what we do, and we wouldn't be able to do it without the support of our listeners. You can listen to us anywhere, find podcasts or heard. You can follow us on social media at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Driven Radio Show, and on LinkedIn at Driven Radio Show Podcast, or visit us online at www.drivenradioshow.com. I am Brett Hatfield for Mark L. Groves. Yep. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time here on Driven Radio.